Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. Today's guest is Professor Mark Kingwell. We talked to Mark about his new book, Singular Creatures, Robots, Rights, and the Politics of Posthumanism. Mark is a Canadian professor of philosophy and associate chair at the University of Toronto's Department of Philosophy. He's published dozens of books, most notably A Civil Tongue, Justice, Dialogue, and the Politics of Pluralism, which was awarded the Spitz Prize for Political Theory in 1997. In 2000, Kingwell received an honorary Doctor of Fine Arts from the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design for contributions to theory and criticism. He's held visiting posts at institutions including University of Cambridge, University of California at Berkeley, and City University of New York, where he held the title of Wiseman Distinguished Professor of Humanities. Mark weaves together politics, philosophy, history, and pop culture to make important and complex issues not only understandable, but also fascinating. We talk to Mark about everything from consciousness, boredom, happiness, and of course, The Simpsons. So please enjoy Professor Mark Kingwell. So you're a professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto. Can you share a little bit about your areas of research? Well, it's interesting. As I look back on my career, which is now a few decades on, I started in very traditional political theory, a sub-branch called justice theory, which is about the basic arrangement of societies and how we justify rules and regulations and distributive schemes. In the, the decade or two after my PhD, I started finding myself doing a lot more criticism. And that was partly under the influence of what is sometimes called the Toronto School, Harold Innes, Marsha McLuhan, um, the people who in the 60s and 70s really started looking critically at technology and in its post-war guises. So I come out of that tradition and uh, with some Martin Heidegger and some other things in the mix, I still think all of this is uh, political theory. I, I really do think that everything I've done is part of a, a larger political project, but uh, I'm some distance away now in most of my publishing from the, the very straight up abstract political theory that I started with. You've written many books. Your most recent uh, that we're discussing today is Singular Creatures, which contemplates robots, rights, and the politics of posthumanism. How has the culmination of the last several decades of your research led you to this book? That's really interesting when I think about it, because I feel like I was driven to write this book and from external and internal forces. In some ways, it's a companion book to my 2019 title called Wish I Were Here, which is about boredom and technology. Uh, boredom and the interface is the official subtitle. And I wrote that abiding interest in boredom as a human experience. Philosophers have long been fascinated by uh, the particularly modern notion of boredom, that is overstimulation leading to a kind of stasis uh, and restlessness. Philosophers like Kierkegaard and Schopenhauer in the 19th century really laid the groundwork for Heidegger and others in the 20th to think about boredom. Its relationship to technology is really interesting because we all know about addictive qualities in, in certain technologies, but what's the interplay between stimulus? addiction, boredom, all of these states of mind that, in a sense, the technologies take advantage of. 
So this book about AI and especially about sentient potential sentient AIs to me follows directly from this. Uh, it may not seem so direct, but I had been interested in the ethics of AI through some work at the University of Toronto Ethics Center. And uh, I started thinking, as many people have, what would it be like if we were cohabiting with non-human entities that were artificial? We already raise pressing ethical and political questions about non-human entities that are organic. Uh, Martha Nussbaum, the great uh, American philosopher, just has a new book out about animal rights and animal care. Uh, we've been debating that for centuries. Uh, but now we're on the brink of creating these artificial entities, which may have some of the same qualities of sentience and self-direction and even autonomy. And this is new terrain. So uh, it's partly that the technology is something that has to be examined critically and carefully. And partly it's just very exciting to think about how the, the universe of entities is expanding. The, uh, the kingdom of ends, as the philosopher Kant put it, might be getting bigger. To me, as a philosopher, that's, that's very, very invigorating. In the book, you talk about there's two very extreme sides. So there's sort of the, the technophiles and the technophobes. And you try to stitch together a conversation that really blends both and meets somewhere in the middle of contemplating a world with post-humanism or transhumanism. Can you speak a little bit about how you research that and how you're thinking about that? This is a long interest of mine to try to find some kind of dialectical route to navigate between technophile and technophobe. Long-standing interest goes back in my own work, at least to the 1990s, uh, but in philosophy and Technology studies goes back many decades. Both extremes, I think, are wrong, as, as so often, or but it is dialectical because they have partial truth. And so if we want to try to synthesize a better answer uh, in Hegelian fashion, we have to take seriously the truth in each. So the, the technophobe has a real axe to grind that technology is frightening sometimes. And when there are technological advances that seem to run out of control, of ethical and political reflection, uh, that's when we get very anxious as, as human beings. <laughs> Concrete things, practical things like losing jobs or whole sectors folding up because of technological advances. This has happened over and over, at least since the Industrial Revolution, but even before that. Uh, you know, So livelihoods di simply disappear because of, of technological advance. Uh, and then you get into the, the special anxieties of the non-human entity, the robot, uh, the killer robot, um, Frankenstein's monster, the golem, all of these both mythical and scientific uh, abominations from the technophobe's point of view. On the other side, the technophile can be a kind of runaway train all by her or himself. That is to say, uh, a cheerleader with no critical consciousness in play. And I think corporate interests here, neoliberal uh, economies contribute to this because the profit motive is such a powerful one in human affairs. Uh, if you have a technological advance or, or slight edge, uh, there's, there's tremendous internal incentive to maximize that advantage. Uh, <clears throat> and in a market economy, um, that it it's just makes rational sense to do precisely that. Let the chips fall where they may. So 
you know, right now we're at a, an interesting moment because people are becoming much more critical and skeptical of big tech, uh, especially, you know, the, the kind of consolidation of power in uh, the large, largest companies, Google, Amazon, so on. Uh, at the same time, they love the toys. Everybody loves toys. Uh, and the upgrade imperative is constant. Uh, so it's not even planned obsolescence anymore. That was the bugbear of the 1950s. You know, the uh, Thomas Pynchon has this great riff in his novel, Gravity's Rainbow, about a perpetual light bulb called Marvin. And the perpetual light bulb is suppressed by General Electric and other corporations because they need people to keep buying new light bulbs. Uh, so that's that's an old sort of, uh, you know, a, a riff, really. Uh, nowadays, people want new things even before they need them. Right? So uh, early adoption, um, you know, being ahead of the curve with a new phone or a new device. Uh, th this is a kind of internal logic in the human mind. Uh, the products become available because we want them. And then it's a, a cycle. And do you see that desire? for the novel, the new, has that been very much constructed by the current state of technology? And are we responding to it? Or is it something that we desire first? Yeah, I don't think you can say it's one before the other. I think it's a dynamic system. And the evidence seems to, to bear that out. That is to say, uh, there wouldn't be such a strong internal incentive on the part of companies to create new products if they didn't think that the market was there. And then they find a market. And if they don't, then they move on to something else. So classic market failure, uh, the market corrects itself uh, through success and failure. And do I know that I want something before I want it? Probably not. You know, I, I know that I want a phone. Uh, do I need a phone uh, and feel a want for a phone that has that good a camera? You know, the new Pixel, for example, is being advertised through its camera function which is a long way from what even the, you know, a couple of generations ago, what a cell phone was for. You know, I always think of the, the it's now an old ad with the, the Manning brothers, the two <clears throat> football quarterbacks, and they're mocking some guy for using his phone as a phone. You know, look <laughs> at that guy, he's, he's actually talking to people on his phone. Uh, so we don't use phones like that anymore. It's, it's a whole different thing. Uh, did we know we wanted that? Mm, no, not really. But then it's it's a, this is the addiction part in a way. It it is like a drug. Uh, it's not it's not true physical addiction, I don't think. But uh, it's got qualities that answer to our uh, cycles of desire and and uh, temporary satisfaction. Uh, and <clears throat> there's really good evidence. I talk about this a little bit in both the boredom book and Singular Creatures. That programmers are very good at, at noting this, right? So um, programming and, and then down the line, merchandising, advertising, uh, very good at arousing specific desires and keeping them running. So, uh, you know, classic examples, uh, this, the endless scroll on Facebook was an early, now quite primitive looking, but video games have this structure of, you know, levels and boss battles and so on, which is, is designed to be addictive. Uh, so programmers now are, are starting to reflect ethically on whether they should be writing programs like that, uh, because they do take advantage of our a very, very fragile brain chemistry. <laughs> We're living in the attention economy now, 
And you mentioned, just referenced your, your last book and how it ties to this book about the concept of boredom. So just to ask plainly, do you believe boredom is a good thing and necessary for the human experience? I do, actually. The short answer is yes, I do. What I try to, I'm at pains in that book, um, wish I were here, to distinguish between, I actually talk about five or six different kinds of boredom, but really breaks into two categories. There's the, the harmful boredom that puts us on a kind of hamster wheel of constant seeking after satisfaction that never satisfies. And then there's what I call philosophical boredom or reflective boredom. And that's the kind that those philosophers I mentioned before, Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, Heidegger, that's what they were talking about, where boredom is an opportunity for existential reflection and your, your being in the world. And in a sense, who could ask for anything more from an experience that starts in a kind of uh, discomfort? You know, the restlessness of boredom is, as Schopenhauer says, it paints a, a picture of true suffering on the human visage. Uh, when you see somebody who is profoundly bored, you know, a prisoner, for example, somebody who's incarcerated or uh, a, a child without any kind of playmate, uh, uh, but anybody really uh, under the, the right or wrong circumstances, uh, it's extremely painful. And so then you try to alleviate it in these endless cycles of, of stimulation, or do you, in a sense, dwell in it and try to plumb its depths for insight about your, your consciousness, about your, your position in a world of meaning? Um, I think you, you can do either. And it's really uh, the, the methods by which you, you go in one direction or the other uh, are really interesting. So that's the, the subcategories you know, so-called creative boredom or deferred boredom. Uh, there's a lot of interesting psychological research that's been done in the last couple of decades about this. Uh, so philosophers and psychologists are sort of coming together as so often. Uh, and I think it's really totally fascinating. Uh, one of the bridging questions between that book and this one is, can we imagine a non-human entity that's bored? Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to think. I know that... I live with with companion animals, um, as many people do. I know they get bored. I can see it. I mean, you can feel it. It's uh, I'm not I'm not a sort of you know crazy pet person. I hope, but uh, <laughs> when you have a relationship with with a non-human animal, uh, you you know certain things. You communicate, and so then the question is on the other side of of the post-human, uh, an artificial entity could it be bored? Uh, would would we want to program something into its algorithms such that it could be capable of boredom? Because that's so important to understanding our own consciousness. Uh, or would we prefer that it it not have to suffer that and could simply go about its tasks and help us achieve our ends? But one of the things that's fascinating about this is once you admit the possibility of sentient AIs, uh, you have to start asking these political questions. Do they have rights? Uh, can they be exploited without further ado, like tools? You know, tools, the hammer doesn't get to answer back when you pick it up and start hammering things. Uh, but they would, they would not be like hammers. They would be much more complex. And uh, in order to achieve the, the ends that we set for them, we emergent properties will will come uh, and consciousness might be one of them that 
hasn't happened yet. We're a long way from it, uh, but we get closer all the time. And uh, and of course, meanwhile, the anxiety builds. I mean, <laughs> as, as we're talking here in uh, the last part of 2022, everybody's freaking out about the programs developed by GPT. So chat GPT, GPT-3, which are text generation programs, very sophisticated. Will they take jobs away from journalists or, you know, there's a whole another sector, not mechanized, you know, not assembly line workers now, but so-called knowledge workers. Will they be put out of business, right? And your uh, philosophy students. Yeah, exactly. So we went through, we've gone through various iterations of the philosophy thing um, <laughs> with massive online courses and uh, automated courses and so on. And I think what one thing that the, the pandemic taught all of us has has been teaching all of us is uh, the in-person connection, the you know the the bodily proximity makes a big difference. Um, so there's no substitute for the small seminar. The large lecture course could be done. You, know, you can scale that, but uh, you can't scale a seminar by definition. Uh, so there's still some place for for philosophy teaching. I hope. Uh, I'm, my younger colleagues are a lot more freaked out about this than I am. I'm kind of on the downslope now, so it's all, <laughs> all good. And I'm sure in those small seminars, you've also observed boredom from time to time. Yes, I yes, <laughs> I have, and I've experienced it too, uh, on, <laughs> on both sides of the, of the desk. I don't think students realize this, that, that their professors get bored during <laughs> class sometimes. Oh no, you've told the secret. So I'm wondering, or bridging that question from your previous book to this book about the existence of boredom potentially in machines, you know, should we have that embedded in? There's a deeper question that you raised or you touched on briefly about consciousness. And I think this is a conversation we hear a lot about when will we know or when will we be able to say we have a non-human conscious thing? And I think it makes us also contemplate our own consciousness. How do we know that we're also conscious? How do we define it? And so I'm curious to know how you think about this. Your last point is absolutely on the mark because really what's philosophically interesting about all of these things is what does it say about us and about our experience of the world and how that might be changing? You know, so uh, what I call the politics of posthumanism is is really just a label for the changes that are coming that are already here. Uh, a colleague of mine likes to say we've always been post-human in the sense that when we say something is human, we tend to be uh, sandbagging is the sports term. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to protect what we know and feel comfortable with. But, but human experience spills out of these sandbag fortifications all the time. Uh, in technology and in, in, you know, other kinds of things. Um, so with consciousness, it's, you know, the great mystery of philosophy, what consciousness is. Uh, philosophers have struggled with it for millennia. Um, what I would say, I guess, is I don't have a good definition, a knockdown definition. I'm not sure any philosopher really does. Uh, <clears throat> but to have a point of view, to have a sense of, of being in a world, uh, so a, a subjective orientation and an objective position. Uh, you need both to, to be conscious. <clears throat> and you need, you need to be, uh, one needs to be able to relate to others, even with the, the mysteries. You know, so 
the so-called problem of other minds, which comes to us at least since Descartes, but is in fact much older, uh, we can't know directly the consciousness of another. What do we have to go on? We have um, basically behavior, right? We have language, gesture, uh, physical presence, affect. Uh, we don't, I mean, I'm assuming that you're conscious uh, in a way that that's pretty much like I am, uh, <clears throat> but I can't know it. It's just a necessary assumption of this interaction or any interaction. So I think we're going to have to think about it that way. Uh, what's tricky for people right now, you know, circa 2022, is the programs that are so unsettling are mostly mimicry. And they're very sophisticated mimicry. But we, we should take leave to wonder whether there's anything behind the curtain, right, behind the interface. Uh, I'm not sure we have a good test. You know, the, the famous test, the Turing test, is at the root of a lot of this. Uh, if you can't tell the difference between a non-human entity and a human entity uh, in in your interactions, the GPT programs are very impressive uh, and and hence scary. Uh, but and there there are you know you know people will know in the news there are Google employees who say that they have interacted with conscious algorithms. Yeah, I I can say from my own experience I haven't yet. I look forward to it. <laughs> but I, I think we're probably a long distance still from that kind of sophistication. If you think about it in terms of hardware and software, you know, the human brain is still vastly more complicated than any algorithm that's ever been written or any structure of algorithms. Uh, and consciousness is an emergent property of that complexity, uh, which developed relatively late in, in human evolution. So um, we, we have to be a little bit cautious on on this, but uh, you can understand, one can understand why it happens. When we think about the fact that we don't really know directly the inner experience of others, uh, if we're talking to a, a non-human entity that seems just as real right. as one, um, that is freaky, right? That's just genuinely down-home freaky. <laughs> so I get it, you know, but um, I'm skeptical on that point so far. Your point about consciousness, meaning that you have a point of view and chat GPT, for example, is, is exceptionally good at mimicry. You know, I'm thinking of a quote by Chuck Palahniuk, nothing of me is original. I'm the combined effort of everyone I've ever known. And that's, um, you know, an author, a creator, a creative. And I'm wondering if that awareness that Chuck is expressing in that quote illustrates his consciousness of the way he sort of has stitched together mimicry of pieces of things and people that he's met. Yeah, it's uh, it's nicely put actually because this pushes the uh, the boundaries, rattles the cage a little more. Because and again, that's the point I think philosophically is to engage in deep self reflection. If we think of ourselves that way, well, what is the self? You know, except an accumulation of memories, experiences, uh, influences. You know, I think of the, I, I talk a lot about uh, cultural production uh, around these themes. So in Blade Runner, for example, <clears throat> the, the 82 Ridley Scott, uh, you know, the, the consciousness seems reducible to memories. Rachel has photographs that have, we, we know have been faked, but she doesn't know or she doesn't believe. Uh, she thinks that that's her family and herself as a young, younger woman. 
And then the, the great mystery from the, the Philip K. Dick original material is, is Deckard, a replicant too. It's fascinating because that, that sort of end game, I think also of Boomer in Battlestar Galactica, you know, when you might not know yeah. whether you were naturally organically created or artificially created, and then would it matter? You know, and this is now we're kind of in the uncanny valley territory where when, when you can tell the difference between a human entity and a nearly but not human entity, that's creepy, right? That's why uh, in, you know, you plunge, I'm assuming most listeners will know the uncanny valley idea. You plunge into a feeling of, of weirdness when you're confronted by that. But then the idea is that as those entities that are not human get more advanced and are more and more indistinguishable from humans, it doesn't matter anymore. Right? I mean, so you're a synthetic, who cares? You're made of, you know, plastic and silicon, and I'm made of carbon. Like, what's the big deal? So I, I, that to me as a philosopher is mind blowing because we've been so anthropocentric for so long uh, that now we're really, really being pushed. And the, both the, the larger scene, right? What I think of as the political scene in the broad sense, but also what, what the Plania quote uh, forces upon us, you know, what is it to be a self? Is it just an accumulation of bits and pieces and influences? And if it is, why couldn't it be replicated in lots of different ways? There's nothing special about carbon. You know, I, there's lots of it around, but that's, that's about it. Once you start thinking this way, people get very um, defensive, you know, the human. So what makes people so protective of the concept of the human? Well, it's, it's, I mean, obviously it's fear that their, their nostrums are, and settled beliefs are going to be unsettled. I just um, became a grandparent. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, kind of took me by surprise. I mean, not really. I knew it was coming, but the way that we procreate is, is objectively a little bizarre, kind of insane, actually. You know, we're growing new humans inside our bodies and, and then pulling them out. It's evolutionarily, it's just crazy. I mean, nobody would, would set up a system like that, but nevertheless, it's the system we have. And so people do this kind of collapse down, right? The, the um, draw, draw up the, the bridge, say, well, that's natural. And that's therefore is right. But as a, a professor of mine used to say, nothing is natural until we make it so. Natural is, is uh, an ideological construct something that's used to protect certain interests. And I'm enough of a social constructionist to, to say, uh, when somebody invokes naturalness or humanness, uh, let's ask why, what are they trying to protect? And, you know, you have to acknowledge that they, they need to protect it or they feel they need to protect it. But the world is the world, you know, and we're part of it. Uh, so what we do changes what we are. And uh, we're constantly doing that. That's, you know, again, the, we have always been post-human because we're constantly fiddling and we're good at it. Uh, you know, we're also, you know, we do terrible things uh, with that same set of abilities. Uh, but I think that's, that's why people get freaked out because they think, well, I thought I understood what it meant to be a human being. And now somebody's coming along, this crazy philosopher and saying, I'm going to have to give rights recognition to robots, you know, um, but that's that, you know, that's the, the hand we've been dealt as thinkers. And I love it, frankly. 
And even you mentioned the, the way that procreation works for us and the concept of wanting a natural birth versus not wanting to have medical intervention, even in what we call natural experience of birthing another human, there's a subsection of dividing between what is more natural, which is, you know, not having any sort of medical intervention. Do you see that division between what I see as natural and not natural in many different areas? Is there another area that you that you can see that in? Well, before I talk about some other areas, let's just dwell briefly on the, the medical, right, in the broad sense. So we've, we've medicalized pregnancy and childbirth to a large degree, which uh, is part of the medical model. Um, but all of the other things that medicine does, Western medicine, I guess I should say, uh, is similar. So it happens that when I was finishing Singular Creatures, I underwent two transplantation operations. So solid organ transplants um, in my body. Uh, so these are not prostheses, right? These are organs from other human beings, which had been introduced into my body. And hence, I'm able to still be here. Uh, again, this is frankly bizarre and kind of insane that we can do this. Uh, it happens every day. Talented surgeons and teams are, are doing successful transplants all over the world every day. Um, and we take that for granted now that the procedures have been well established. But you take just half a step back and it's like, wow, over in that ward, we're pulling new humans out of bodies. And here in this ward, we're taking organs from other humans and putting them in this body to keep it going. Uh, you know, we do this kind of stuff all the, literally all the time. All the time. Yeah. So I think when... People start thinking about that, and you mentioned, you know, the fine lines between uh, natural, so-called natural uh, procedures and, and non, right? Do you get the epidural? Do you, you know, do you get the C-section? My, my uh, daughter had to go through all of these questions, right? Uh, and that's just par for the course of being fleshly. So medicine is really interesting. And, and of course, that's one of the frontier areas for AI research, because a lot of these um, very sophisticated programs can do diagnostics and even procedures that uh, are more successful than, than human uh, interventions. But I think other areas um, are going to prove likewise. Energy is a good one to, to think about because it's such a problem. You know, the um, I was thinking about this before we started that... Uh, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is subtitled The New Prometheus. And I talk about this in the book. Uh, Prometheus is this really interesting, conflicted character in our memory. He's the bringer of fire, but he stole it from the gods, so he gets punished. Becomes, therefore, a symbol of technology, both pro and con. And so Frankenstein creating the artificial entity, Dr. Frankenstein creating his monster is a... a uh, you know, that the a harbinger of technology um, is that energy, is that medicine, is that un, unwarranted or bad experimentation. Um, all of this is happening. Um, so, yeah, energy is really interesting to steal fire or to, uh, you know, harbor, har harness electricity uh, and finding new sources of energy. Uh, that's maybe less close to the skin, literally, than medicine. Uh, but then the other stuff that we talked about briefly already, uh, interactions with with text and voice. Uh, 
how does that change the the information landscape or the attention economy that you mentioned? Um, you know, it's no surprise to me that the so, the so-called chattering classes are preoccupied with these new technologies because they're precisely the ones who might be looking at a new kind of future. You know, if a program can generate an opinion article, right, which used to be the the pinnacle of newspaper journalism, right? I have I have a, an argument. Uh, but if the program can do it, you know, why, why, why am I paying you $150,000 to write a weekly call? <laughs> so I don't, that, that's fascinating to watch. Um, uh, so I think, yeah, so uh, medicine, energy, let's call it information, which would include journalism and some kinds of scholarship and information gathering. Uh, to me, those are the three areas where most of the interesting stuff is happening right now. Uh, and as I said, we're a long way from even semi-autonomous entities with a point of view. But I, I can't imagine that there are, well, sorry, I should say opinions divided whether there are in principle boundaries on this, right? Some people who I talk about this at some length in, in Singular Creatures, they're, they're singularity skeptics, right? The singularity is the idea that at some point, a non-human entity will be able to replicate itself uh, and, in a sense, procreate, um, and then will we'll vastly outpace human cognition or, or uh, algorithmic power. Uh, many skeptics say that you know there are limitations on on just physical limitations on computing systems, for example. Uh, and then there are believers who think it's coming, maybe not for decades or even centuries, but it's coming. Um, I don't know myself, but I, I remain uh, fascinated by what it could mean. That's really what this book is about. Is uh, This is a really great moment to think all of this through as much as we can, because things are moving fast. You know, the world is changing and we're part of the world. I mean, it, put it that way, it's pretty straightforward. Just to double click on medical robot. So a robot that can support in surgery or perform a surgery that's, you know, very complex. The ethical conversation around who is responsible if let's say the cut's not made properly or an artery's hit, how do you think about that conversation around the ethics of applying AI or robots to a medical intervention with a person? Yeah, I, this is how I really got into this. I mentioned before the the uh, Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto, which is when I started working on ethics of AI and uh, now with colleagues at, at Stockholm University and University of Colorado and elsewhere, these are the questions we ask. So the medical stuff is top of mind there. And then there are other related things like uh, self-driving cars, for example, where or self-flying planes. If there's some malfunction, where's the, the liability? Uh, is it just like, you know, a wrench breaks a bolt off and there's nobody at fault? Or there is fault because the bolt was forged improperly and you trace it back. So with, with the medical things, you think about that scenario you sketched, that's catastrophic, right? Potentially. Um, and I think at this point, we have a very strong interest in, in uh, localizing liability. We want to be able to say uh, it's it's some human's fault somewhere. We just have to find the right human to blame uh, because we're not comfortable yet. Maybe we never will be with the idea that 
you know, it's the program that went wrong. We say, no, whoever wrote the program made a mistake or there was some other kind of malfunction. Uh, I think we still want that. Right? The, the whole debate about self-driving cars has been like that. Uh, you know, we have to go upstream to find what went wrong with, with uh, and now people are kind of abandoning the idea of self-driving cars. Uh, it used to be the, in some ways, the, the small holy grail of AI research. Uh, I think people aren't so enthused about them anymore. Uh, but the medical stuff is happening. I have a friend who's getting a, a prostate operation in the new year who whose procedure will be performed by uh, a non-human surgical intervention. Now there will be humans in the in the room in the operating theater, uh, but the actual cutting and uh, you know what's happening will be done by machine. Um, and their success rates are much higher than the human ones, or much, not much, somewhat higher. Uh, so I don't know, a lot of it's going to be shakedown, you know, comfort level. Will we be able to say, yeah, okay, something went wrong, but it's not like there was one human, it's not always human error, you know, which is the the kind of the FAA thing that every airplane crash must be <laughs> attributable to human error, but maybe not, you know, sometimes systems just go haywire, uh, so, I mean, it's not even an answer to your question. It's just more like, I think we're evolving in terms of our tolerance for uh, more distributed liability. Uh, and that, that's contrary to our nature because we we really like to hold ourselves responsible or somebody. And have singular accountability. Yeah, exactly. Because we think we're the only ones who are capable of you know making life or death decisions or mistakes. But that's just not the way the world works. And the more complex the world becomes, the more obvious it is that it's not the way the world works. I'm really curious to know, and I guess you'll find out from your friend after their procedure. I mean, there are some life-enhancing surgeries that can take place with the support of a great deal of technology. And there's also a huge emotional experience that we have as a, as a human to go through a surgery, to go through fix an issue or improve your life. And I wonder where that emotion goes, you know, is it, is it gratitude to the team and the technology? I don't know how you feel after you went through your procedures as well. The way you put it is exactly right for me that I met both of my surgeons and these are tremendous skilled professionals who I, I stand in awe of them. But a, a, one of the younger doctors said, you know, it takes a hundred humans to make a transplant happen. And that's not even yet to talk about all the, the technology, the, you know, from everything from general anesthesia, which is itself a kind of amazing thing to obliterate consciousness at will so that pain is not experienced. I mean, this is astonishing when you think about it. Um, and then everything else that that's involved. What fascinated me about the whole uh, transplant uh, experience was the combination of the very, very cutting edge and they're quite primitive, you know? So, uh, and I think people go through surgery often feel this and they probably still will when robots are doing a lot more surgery because basically, you know, you're, you're cutting flesh, you're cutting pieces of meat and you're stitching up things and you're putting things in and it's very, very basic, you know? They, they still suture with what, it's not cat gut anymore, but it, it's the same kind of idea 
uh, and stents, you know, little plastic things that we stick in, prostheses, pacemakers. I mean, the technology gets more sophisticated, but the basics are really, you know, the, the human body is plumbing and rhythm. Yeah. And, uh, so it's, to me, that's just kind of amazing, fascinating, right? So humans plus technology, cutting edge plus primitive. Um, it's just a world of wonders in, in medicine. I think with, uh, as things progress, you know, we see in science fiction scenarios, possible lines of, of newness. Uh, you know, Jean-Luc Picard has an entirely new synthetic body, so his consciousness can be extended into another TV series. <laughs> um, well, we're a long way from that, but would it make a difference? No, because I, you know, we're already in a way preparing ourselves for that. Um, you know, I, I get to be here a bit longer because of a fairly, uh, you know, still pretty basic surgical intervention, but maybe in the future we'll, we'll think very little of much more substantive changes. I want to make one note of caution about this, though, and that's the difference between, crudely, the difference between post-humanism and transhumanism. So transhumanism has got a bad rap, often for good reasons, because it's the idea of, you know, improvement. You mentioned improvement. Uh, and I think that's a dangerous road because it's the, you know, it's it's we're getting closer to things like eugenics and, uh, you know, um, enhancements to create privilege and advantage. And they will be unevenly distributed. They already are. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to live where I do and when I do so I can get these surgical interventions. Imagine if it wasn't just keeping me alive with the new organ, but, you know, giving me greater abilities. Uh, and then, they're, you know, the, the hardcore transhumanists want that. And I think that's a dangerous road. Uh, so posthumanism to me is this expansion of what it means to, to be here. Um, we have to be critical, we have to be careful. Uh, transhumanism is, is another kettle of fish. And I think it's, we have to be very wary of this, uh, especially because of the justice implications. So the world is already unequal enough, you know, even among the human population. Let's, let's be careful not to create new inequalities based on technology. Well said. I want to touch on another piece of writing that you that you did. You wrote an opinion piece on this book in the Globe and Mail. So baseball's robot umpire debate isn't about humans versus non-humans. It's about two visions of humanness. In this article, you talk a bit about how technology has made fans and players into cyborgs of one form or another. Can you share a little more about this concept? Yeah, I, you know, in a way, it goes back to our earlier discussion about the technophile and the technophobe and whether there might be some kind of dialectical resolution because as so often the umpire, the robo umpire debate, like the self-driving car debate and other things of recent vintage fell into these two categories, two responses. One was, uh, you know, baseball traditionalists say, don't change the game. It's all about tradition. It's all about naturalness. Uh, you know, real grass, wooden bats, uh, players get to chew tobacco and spit and, <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera. All baseball fans know this stuff. And then on the other hand, people are like, look, we want the calls to be correct. We don't care about the humanness of the umpire. That's just a barrier. Uh, we don't want umpires to be human because they make mistakes. 
and I wanted to say, look, th this is the wrong way to frame the question, because the question is really about whether you think there is such a thing as the truth concerning a ball or a strike. And that's, a, that's an ancient philosophical debate. It's a debate between rationalists and, and empiricists. And you know, the rationalists are the ones who want the robo-umpire because they think there's a fact of the matter which is transcendent of experience, whether the ball is a strike or a ball, whether the pitch is a strike or a ball. Whereas the empiricists are saying, look, experience is the only basis for judgment, so we need the umpire to judge. And I wanted to say, look, this is, you know, we can take this and see philosophical insight uh, which is not strictly about technology, but which the technological debate sort of sits on top of. And, and that's what I wanted to say, that um, a lot of the technological debates that we have are, are not plumbed for their true philosophical depths, uh, because most people wouldn't think that the robo-umpire thing is about rationalism versus empiricism. <laughs> I want to say it really is. And, you know, you... you maybe you don't have to choose between those. I say at the end of that piece, uh, phenomenology, the school of thought where experience is both um, imminent to judgment and has a transcendental quality, as philosophers would say, uh, might be the right answer. It might be the dialectical route through this, this age-old conflict between rationalists and empiricists. And, you know, phenomenological baseball, if you like, uh, is the way I like to think of baseball. But <laughs> that might be a little fine spun for some people. But uh, the, the bottom line is we, we just need to think more clearly and, and more deeply about our technological reactions because they, they bifurcate so quickly, you know? Uh, and it's a kind of habit of thought which is worth breaking to see it as either entirely pro or entirely con. And I'm wondering as well on the topic of boredom, not that baseball's boring but there's a lot of time. <laughs> it takes a lot of time and there's a lot of time to think. There's a lot of time to be as you watch a baseball match. And I'm wondering how much this addition of technology around the adjudication of baseball is scratching that itch for us as humans as we observe it. Yeah. I mean, inside the debate, there's a lot of talk about this because I mentioned in that piece also other rule changes that are being contemplated and they're all about speeding up the game. And that's really a function of the attention economy that you mentioned. Baseball, the reason philosophers love baseball is because it's precisely kind of physical philosophy, right? You, there's a lot of sitting around and thinking and uh, thoughtful watching. Uh, and there's action, but the action is broken up by all of these longueurs, you know. Um, and I, I wrote a book about baseball, which is about really baseball as philosophy. And... Uh, so if you're used to a different sort of game like football or soccer, uh, you want more action. Um, soccer, though, is interesting because it doesn't have as much gratification as some sports, you know, like basketball, constant scoring in basketball. Uh, but yeah, baseball, um, there's a famous Simpsons episode where um, the baseball team in Springfield is sponsored by a beer company, <laughs> Duff. And then uh, the supply of Duff runs out for some reason. And Homer Simpson's watching the baseball game and he's like, oh my God, this is boring. <laughs> so boring. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not somebody, I don't drink anymore. So I don't watch baseball games with beer. But uh, 
I would hate to think that you can only enjoy a baseball game if you have. <laughs> uh, although, yeah, who knows? You have uh, an incredible way of weaving together politics, philosophy, history, and pop culture. And your work is just so rich in all of these different areas. How do you integrate that into your teaching style? Well, th thank you very much, first of all. Certainly what I have tried to do. With teaching, it's easy in one sense because it you know that the route to comprehension lies first in the familiar and then in the strange. So uh, that's how I think of it. Uh, if you can make a familiar reference so that, that students have something to latch onto that they, they think they know already, and then you twist it, uh, that's, to me, that's a pedagogical moment, an opportunity. So, uh, and there's, especially right now, the last decade or two of uh, what a friend of mine calls recombinant culture, uh, self-referential popular cultural production. Uh, you get a lot of opportunities for things that are on one on the one level just entertaining and familiar, but they also contain interesting ironies or or references that go beyond that. And you know, I, I it's sort of a running gag that I quote The Simpsons in every book that I publish, but uh, <laughs> it's a great example of this because there are lots of really good jokes that have a deeper meaning than just that they're funny. Uh, so that's, with teaching, I think it's it's just the natural way to go that you start with something the students will get and then you, you take, you know, it's almost the uncanny valley in philosophy. You take what was familiar and you make it strange. And um, uh, when it comes to books, I try to make it such that they're both accessible and challenging. And I think that's the best that, anybody can hope for when it comes to these quite difficult sometimes uh, issues. And The Simpsons actually has now a track record of predictions, let's say. We're, we're still waiting for the monorail, but many episodes that then, you know, situations come to life. And I'm thinking about our conversation today and the episode where Homer gets to work from home. He starts working from home on the nuclear power plant and realizes he can put his perpetual motion machine just to hit the to hit Y. Yeah. So now we, of course, have programs that move your mouse every two seconds for remote work. And then, of course, the end of the episode is there's going to be a nuclear power plant failure and he has to go save the day. Do you remember that episode? And also, do you think that that trust he put in the technology and thinking he could just switch off his mind and not have to work anymore, does that fit somewhere in the landscape of the research that you've done? Uh, I do remember the episode because the, uh, the little device is a novelty toy that used to be around where you put water fluid in this bird thing and it it constantly bobs. And uh, and he's amazed to find out that that uh, he doesn't even have to type Y-E-S. He can just hit the Y key. Um, and I, I think he in that episode, he also gains a lot of weight because he's not moving around anymore. Uh, you know, we, we all went through two plus years of dealing with this stuff and adapting um, for better or worse. Um, teaching was interesting for me because I had long been an opponent of online teaching, but it turned out to be more successful than I imagined. And uh, I learned some things about pedagogy and myself. Uh, I think with, with what, what to say about this, I think the, 
there are so many factors when it goes into the idea of work that uh, socialization is a huge part of it, just like it is in education. And we don't just work, you know, we, we are in communities. Um, we have colleagues and coworkers. Uh, and all of that was put into question. Um, uh, luckily, there were, you know, no apocalyptic nuclear meltdowns or anything like that. But uh, I think it was it, it felt like for everybody a, a risky time. I wrote a little pamphlet in the midst of it called "On Risk," and just to think about <clears throat> what it means to risk things and dealing with probabilities of, uh, in in this case, infection and disease and so on. Uh, and then I spent all this time in the hospital in the last year and a half, and um, there they deal with risk every day, mortal risk. Uh, life, life is mortal risk. So one of your bestsellers, Better Living, In Pursuit of Happiness from Plato to Prozac, you talk about happiness from a multitude of angles. Can you tell us a bit more about them? But most importantly, how do you construct happy in the modern world? Yeah, so I mean, that book was kind of a breakout book for me in the sense that uh, it was published what almost 25 years ago now, uh, which is frightening. Um, but it was it was my my second sort of non-academic or crossover book. Uh, the first one was about the millennium and anxiety about that and technology and so on. Um, the happiness book was also about technology because, as the title suggests, uh, subtitle, um, you know, we have all of these philosophical accounts of happiness and well-being, but it was very characteristic of the late 20th century that we were looking for a technological solution, including pharmacology, but all kinds of other mechanisms. So I wanted to trace that idea and that that um, that that shift from using reflection or introspection as a kind of mechanism of happiness seeking to external interventions like drugs or uh, psychotherapy or other kinds of things. Psychotherapy is interesting because it kind of bridges the, the divide between philosophy and technology. Um, so yeah, different kinds of, of conceptions. Uh, I didn't have anything particularly groundbreaking to say about this, but you know, the difference between momentary satisfaction or uh, a, a sense of well-being in the moment contrasted with sense of, of living a, a good life over time, uh, being able to look back on your, your narrative and approve of it, uh, which is a very Greek idea, ancient Greek idea of happiness. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, the philosopher Solon said, call no man happy until he's dead. Uh, because you never know what's going to happen right up until the last moment. Actually, Plato then says, uh, you can't even call somebody happy then because things that you did in your life have consequences after your death. Uh, it's a very complicated, very Greek notion of, of um, happiness. Aristotle talks about eudaimonia, which we translate as happiness, but really means being uh, eudaimon and means beautiful spirit, more or less. Uh, to be uh, inspired, to be in, inhabited by a beautiful spirit. Uh, so it means faring well and doing well. Uh, so the the ancient modern contrast is an obvious one there because people in, in modern times look for quick fixes, 
technological fixes. Uh, I wanted to say, again, uh, let's try to be dialectical here. Let's, let's not say we have to return to some pre-modern notion that's crazy, uh, untenable, but let's also not be uncritical about uh, our desire being offloaded or uh, diverted into things that aren't going to work over the long term. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I mean, Prozac has helped many people, uh, so have other SSRIs and other drugs, but it's not the solution to the happiness problem in philosophical terms. Uh, I don't think anybody nowadays, you know, 20 plus years on would even claim that. But at the time, in the 90s, it was, you know, people were giving their pets Prozac and you know, little kids were being given Prozac. Prozac was everywhere. Um, and it was just a kind of symbol for this. Uh, I think it was rooted in anxiety. I really do. I think the Millennium book and the Happiness book, which were published a couple of years apart, really were, were both about anxiety at the end of the century. Very typical. Uh, historical examples abound of this. Uh, now that we're in the 21st, we're looking at anxieties in new ways. I mean, it, again, it's sort of taking the same Rubik's cube and spinning it uh, a couple more times. Uh, at least that's how it feels to me. I mean, I've been writing about all this stuff, these clusters of ideas for, you know, two or three decades. And it just seems like new ways of looking at the same problems. Um, but the happiness book was fun to write because I did a lot of first person stuff. I went to a happy camp and I uh, put myself on Prozac for a while. And, uh, you know, just sort of a young man's book, I suppose. It was uh, in the spirit of Tom Wolfe and George Plimpton, the kind of new journalism where you you have reflection, but you also have experience. And I tried to be funny uh, here and there. <laughs> so it was a fun book to write, and I was really pleased with the reception. It got um, much more attention than I imagined it would. Uh, so that was great. Why do you think it resonated so deeply with folks? Well, I think it's it's in in some ways it's pretty obvious that everybody's concerned about the question of happiness. Right. Uh, everybody has been. Every human who's ever lived has wondered what happiness would look like, how to achieve it, uh, whether they have a chance at it. Uh, unless you're completely immiserated, which unfortunately people have been and it still are, uh, you you want to try and find happiness. And even even people who are immiserated, uh, you know, the, the reports are astonishing that the resilience of the happiness desire, even under the most abject circumstances. Uh, that's one thing I, I talked about in that book that I forever astonished me that you would hear these reports of, oh, say the, you know, the concentration camps or the really terrible, terrible poverty and people still striving to understand what what a happy life might be under those circumstances, uh, humans are amazing that way, um, and so it's kind of triumph of the spirit, really, when you put it that way. But lots of disappointments along the way because you can become preoccupied with your own unhappiness. And uh, this was for me, it was philosophy in its therapeutic mode, uh, which is one of those strains that goes through really the, the Western tradition. Uh, Plato is in some ways the ultimate philosophical therapist. Um, Aristotle, not so much. He's an analytician. But that strain of philosophy as 
useful reflection. It, happiness was the natural place to, to explore that. Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Amar Kaur and me, Elizabeth Chim. What an incredible conversation with Professor Mark Kingwell. I felt like I was in just a phenomenally condensed lecture, but one of the good ones where you're not bored. And what the listeners couldn't see is that his cat joined for the entire conversation and kept trying to get his attention. And it felt like the more engaging the conversation got, the more the cat desperately needed to be on his shoulder <laughs> next to him. It was really quite funny. A lot of this, uh, the conversation with Mark actually reminded me of grade 11 and 12 because I took a course called Theory of Knowledge during those two years. And it boiled down to basic concepts of philosophy. But I wanted to ask, what was your favorite high school subject? Music. Nice. Mine was ISAP. So it was intro to sociology, anthropology, and psychology. It's a tasting menu. Yes. So... What I really liked about Mark's conversation is his concept of boredom. There's different types of boredom. I had never (laughs) considered that. And it had me reflecting a little bit on how I perceive boredom. And correct me if I'm wrong, Sonia, but I would categorize you as somebody who does not like to be bored. What would make you say that? (laughs) I've seen you on an airplane. (laughs) You have a full work day while you're on a plane. I agree. This is true. It is so fun on the airplane, though, because it feels like you're making up for time, time that you otherwise wouldn't have. I get a real thrill out of that. But I think that, like you said, that in boredom, you have the opportunity to spark creativity. Like you need that space. In a piece of music, there's notes, there's rests. You're not always playing. You need to leave a pause. That was a dramatic pause. Also with your rhythms and how you create and go about your daily life, you need to build those into. It's just, I like always having a little something if that's possible. Yeah, that's fair. I think I kind of revel in boredom. I remember as a kid, I would have to follow my mom around a lot. So going to her hair appointments, going to laundromats and not having anything to do. And so now I find that I do really well in non-stimulating environments. Like sometimes when I'm on a plane, I won't listen to or watch anything. And I'll just sit there and stare directly in front of me and just be lost in my own thoughts. This is wild. (laughs) I sleep. (laughs) Just to make it clear, I feel weird when there's nothing to do. So like I'm always looking for the next thing or the new thing. I leave cleaning till the very end of that list. But if I have to, then it's cleaning. (laughs) So another topic that I wish Mark talked a little bit more about was the slight change of opinions on self-driving cars. So I remember that being all the rage a couple years ago. Like this would be the epitome of human technology and this is where our future should be going. And yeah, I have also kind of changed my tune on that. I don't think we need self-driving cars. I think it would be beneficial here and there. Like we as a society will kind of always need vehicles like that. But 
Amar, I feel like you know where this is going. I would rather have walkable cities and communal (laughs) transportation infrastructure. Like this is her platform. She's running for mayor. (laughs) (laughs) We're announcing it here. Like speed trains and just transit that comes so frequently that you don't need to like work your whole day around how that works. And Lisa Simpson (laughs) would agree on my views on cars and city infrastructure. For the record. Hashtag vote for Elizabeth. 